Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Our special guest on today's show is Ben Renshaw. He's a speaker, a coach, consultant, and popular author of nine books, including Purpose, Super Coaching, and his latest book, Being. But before we get a chance to speak with Ben, it's a leadership back in news. Do you believe in luck? Today in the news, we're going to explore the principle of luck. Now, you may have heard the phrase, you make your own luck, and I certainly believe in showing up, working hard, and attempting to be exceptional at work. And I also subscribe that there may be a small proportion of chance, timing, coincidence, and destiny, call it whatever you will. There are some people who always seem to be on the right side of luck. We might think of them as being jammy and lucky and fluky in some kind of strange way. You might be able to quote a phrase, such as Samuel Golding's quote, the harder I work, the luckier I get. But really, being lucky is a system that anyone can apply to reap the rewards again and again. And based on my dozens and dozens of interviews with exceptional leaders, here are my five habits of these lucky people. They show intent. The more tickets you buy at a raffle, the more likely you are to win, right? People who think of themselves as lucky tend to put themselves out there more than most are willing to. They find some comfort in uncomfortableness. And this means that they win more opportunities. Of course, they also lose a lot too, but you're less likely to hear about that. They practice taking risks and get better at working out what looks like a great gamble. And over time, they spot the best value opportunities, weigh up the odds, make sure they're in their favour and go for it. And of course, constantly worrying about the negatives will stop and hold us back from getting those lucky breaks. Paying it forward. The luckiest people I know aren't all shrewd business people or professional gamblers. They like succeeding in life and work, and they want others to do the same too. They feel that they've been fortuitously dealt with a winning hand. And in turn, they share their knowledge. They become mentors and coaches and aids to other people. They have an attitude of gratitude. Lucky people hold an attitude of gratitude. They can regularly list out things that they're grateful for. They've trained their minds and themselves to notice where they've been fortunate and have started to believe that good luck follows them wherever they go. They say thank you for every favour. They never forget kindness. Their gratitude means people love doing things for them too. Doors are always opening. They keep it real. Lucky people are not consumed with small and irrelevant details or things that don't really matter. They're not wasting their time and energy with the inconsequential matters because they know that their input is far better placed elsewhere. They notice when they're in too close to a situation whether they're seeing tunnel vision or leading with fear, they can quickly adapt and switch to regain perspectives 
and choose new favorable approaches. They are network magnets. Lucky people just attract other lucky people. It's almost as if we think that their luck will rub off on others. The truth is that every lucky person I know is updating and speaking with their network regularly. They're checking in, catching up and looking to grow their network, grow their knowledge and experiences. And they don't know for sure it will lead to lucky breaks, but amazing opportunities often follow. So maybe being lucky is merely a mindset and a way of life. Becoming lucky is possible for anyone who believes it. My invitation to you is act like a lucky person and watch what happens. That's been the Leadership Hacking News. If you have any insights, information or stories you think our listeners would love to hear, please get in touch. Joining me on the show today is Ben Renshaw. Ben is a thought leader who specializes in purpose-led cultures. He's a speaker and author of nine books. The latest is called Being, which is a practical playbook for leading in the age of fast change. Ben, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Steve, great to be together. Thank you very much. So I'm really intrigued in your backstory and how you've arrived here. And I wondered for our listeners' perspective, you can give them a little sense of how you've arrived here because life didn't start out in the world of business and coaching <laughs> and leading. You started out as a classical violinist, right? Yeah, no, look, it's very true. So my, in fact, my whole family and background was music and education. And I grew up as a, as a violinist, as you say, at a little music school called the Yehudi Menuhin School, which is nestled in the... Um, kind of countryside of Surrey. So it's a very beautiful place. Actually, right now it's next to Chelsea Football Club. So their training ground is next door. And in fact, my father was um, the headmaster. So he ran the school. There was no intent when he took the role that I had one sister that we would go to the school, but we played music and um, went to local schools. But then all my friends were at the school and I auditioned, went through all the normal channels and somehow got in. And I had a very kind of love-hate relationship with it. So I, I was talented and I was good. Um, but music was not my thing. And I, and I kind of sensed that from quite an early age. However, I really didn't like academia. So there was a trade-off. as It was just easier to stay at the school, excel in music, than have to pedal away on my... Um, GCSEs and A-levels. Um, so then, but when I left the school, I landed up at what's uh, uh, an institution, the Guildhall School of Music at the Barbican in London, and hated it. I'm not an institutional person. I rebel. I rally against it. And so very quickly, I quit, and I fell into the wor world of personal development. And I actually landed up in America, and I did all my initial training there and just got completely passionate and ignited about uh, human potential and what was possible. And that really then began to unfold. And I went through a few incarnations. I specialized initially in the field of relationships. And actually, many years ago, was um, I was kind of known as the relationship expert and fronted shows. So there was a show called Perfect Match on Channel 4 pre-reality TV. And I did a lot with Richard and Judy and GMTV, a whole bunch of stuff. And then I uh, ran a project called The Happiness Project uh, with a colleague, Dr. Robert Holden, and we specialized in positive psychology. That then took me into the world of business and started working with organizations like British Telecom in the, in the mid-90s when there was a lot of change and transformation. And it really went from there. And then I fell into the world of coaching and absolutely loved that as a methodology and approach for getting the best out of people. 
and then transitioned into leadership. And that took me to where I am today. That's a superb backstory. And I wonder, do you notice some parallels between your life as a musician in terms of the discipline, rigor, practice, as well as noticing those same parallels in business? Yeah, look, it's um, it's interesting. Uh, it's a great, great point. And I think they fall into a few categories. So one is about talent. And if I think about the way I spend my time now, kind of really as a connoisseur of talent, I, I specialize in catching talent and igniting talent and getting the best out of talent, in other words, people. <laughs> um, and I think growing up in a, in a specialized environment, uh, that was very much top of mind. Secondly, around performance. So again, as a musician, practicing four to six hours a day with a relentless, relentless focus on performing at your optimal ability, again, absolutely translate that into business. But I think in terms of my qualities as a coach, what I bring, a lot of my music was based on things like listening, uh, empathy, understanding, and really having that connectivity in terms of playing together. So actually, the music I enjoyed the most was as a string quartet, which is very much a team uh, effort, a team experience. And again, I spend a lot of my time developing high-performing teams. So there are a lot of parallels that I draw upon. And ironically, when you hear that metaphor, we can get the violins out. You're probably one of the few people that actually can get their violin out, right? <laughs> well, not anymore. No, I, I actually, I kind of burnt out on, on the violin, which is a shame in a way, because you know, by the age of 20, I mean, there's, um, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell, the author that talked about 10,000 hours and, you know, for mastery. And I don't think I quite reached my 10,000, but I put in a lot of hours uh, but because it wasn't my passion and it wasn't my purpose, um, I burnt out. Uh, and, and again, that's something I really look at because I'm, you know, I, I'm fascinated about mastery and excelling in what you do and peak performance uh, and what that means and takes. And I think that look, there's a whole bunch of ingredients that contribute to that: um, discipline, effort persistence, never giving up is certainly one of them and grit and determination. And I had a lot of that, but I think it also has to be married with absolute passion and love for what you do, because I think that's where I fell down uh, in music. It's one of the only things that you can almost not train. You can't train passion. It's an innate, isn't it? It comes from other things that obviously you can train around you to create passion. But actually, if you haven't got that fire in the belly, it's probably one of the hardest things to coach out, isn't it? I agree. You could, yeah, absolutely. And for me, that's all about the discovery process. And that's, you know, through my work and coaching and development of leaders, for me, it's all about drawing out that sense of purpose and that passion in order to get the best out of people on a very consistent basis. Got it. So your new book being is based around six principles for leaders so that they can be more agile and adaptive in the world that we're in at the moment. What was the inspiration behind this book? Yeah, look, all, all my writing is, is all based on experience. So essentially what I've, I've learned over the years is I'm very, I think I'm very intuitive and I, and I do stuff without really knowing what I'm doing. I then go through a process of writing about it and then it kind of comes and makes sense and goes, oh, okay, so that's what I'm doing. Now, this concept of being and the fundamental 
um, idea here is a shift from human doings to human beings. And, and really the reason for the book is because the feedback I always receive from leaders I work with was probably the most powerful and impactful thing they took from my work was this concept of being. And in essence, I think what tends to happen, particularly in business, is that the language I, I use is say, look, we become human doings and we forget that we're human beings. And what I mean by that is the level of task and transaction that people get consumed by, they literally become machines and they forget the humanity. They forget that at the end of the day, we are human beings. And that quality of being is absolutely essential in order to be visionary, be inspiring, be effective, be connected, be relational. All of that starts with the quality of your being. And leadership ultimately is about how are you being, which will then definitely go and shape what you do. So this is not about not doing, but you first and foremost, you've got to be clear about how do you want to be. Really neat. And you've created six principles that sit underneath the principle of being that will help us as leaders to step through some self-discovery and self-awareness before we get into that doing stage. And I thought what would be really helpful for our listeners is to maybe take a brief tour of each of those six principles. And the first one you call out is being humble, which sounds really simple to people. It's academically simple, but behaviorally, it's much more challenging, isn't it? Oh, I, 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 this absolutely. This for me is probably the biggest challenge for leaders. Why? Because most leaders are recognized and they get promoted, you know, on their expertise and they begin to think that they're really good at what they do. And they may be good at what they do. But when you get to a position of leadership, it's a different ballgame. And just being good at what you do is not enough. Being a content subject matter expert will get you so far. Uh, but then what happens is, oh, you get people. <laughs> and actually, then it's a completely different proposition in terms of creating followership and actually being able to get the best out of people and you just being brilliant at what you do. Yes, that's going to help. And of course, it's going to get your credibility, but it's not enough. And actually, the way that you then really begin to connect and build relationship and create the conditions in which other people can be at their best and do stuff is through humility, because probably the number one switch off in an organizational context is arrogance. Yeah. You know, and we, I, I have seen so much of this where, yeah, you know, on the whole, I don't question people's intent, leaders' intent uh, in organizations. You know, I, I think most people on the whole show up and their intent is to do a good job and help the organization and not deliberately undermine people. But because we're human, which means we've got blind spots, and for the majority of people, they don't have the level of awareness that they need in order to really understand how they come across and the impact they have and the shadow that they cast. As a consequence of that, I mean, the number of examples I could give you where literally people's lives have almost been destroyed by so-called, you know, leaders, their arrogance, their narcissism, their cynicism, um, and it's very unpleasant. So I feel very strongly that you need to start with this concept of humility. And there are a few bits to that. That means 
you've got to be able and be willing to be vulnerable. You've got to take the risk to show your humanity. We're human. We're fallible. We all make mistakes. If you make a mistake, just say sorry. If you need help, ask for help. <laughs> it's really simple stuff. But actually, for a lot of lead leaders, uh, they find this very challenging. And I guess this comes from that place of brand protectionism almost of themselves and showing humility. There is this, this maybe nagging doubt that they'll be less strong as a result. Completely. And look, I, I think that, you know, if you look at the, 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 the impact of coronavirus and, you know, my experience now is wherever you go, nobody knows what's going on. Nobody's got the answers. Who can predict? Who can predict tomorrow, let alone today? So I think actually what that's really accelerated you know, in organizations and for leaders, it's absolutely precipitated this need for vulnerability and openness and humility. And in particular, uh, uh, an amazing term coined by the psychologist Amy Edmondson, psychological safety. And psychological safety is essentially creating the environment and the conditions where everybody has voice. Everybody feels safe enough to speak up without negative consequences and it is within those conditions where people can really air what's going on what they see what's their experience they can challenge and out of that you know you create the the ahas and the ideas uh, in order to be able to move forward as a collective it's really super love it the next one of your six is being present. What's the concept of being present? Yeah, so the idea here, actually, I'll bring it to life with a, a, a fellow father. I've got three kids and, and a fellow father a while ago told me how his um, 10-year-old son came running home from school. This was pre-COVID and came into the kitchen. Dad, Dad, I want a chocolate biscuit. And his father said, what's the magic word? Now. <laughs> you know, we live in this instant generation. We want everything now. And and yet what's yeah. really interesting, we are so bombarded, you know, by information. I mean, neuroscientists estimate that we're having to process 11 million pieces of data and information in any given second. This, you know, but the conscious mind can only manage about 50 and that's on a good day. <laughs> so we have to really learn to be in the moment to be present and available because otherwise what happens is we get run by something called the autopilot and autopilot is a, it's a great friend it's part of the brain uh, which essentially is associated with fight flight yeah so it, it, it's literally becomes a conditioned response and it's just habit and it's familiarity and it's great because it's quick and it's fast and it's reactive and it you know and it's there to protect us but in order to be conscious and deliberate, which we require today, we need to be very intentional and very present, for instance, about how are we going to be, how are we going to show up, what impact we want to have on others. And in particular, as you mentioned earlier, around the, the need to adapt today, you know, this chapter really talks about things like navigating speed and embracing emergence when we're in an environment of the unknown and welcoming disruption in order to navigate all of that. We've got to be able to be present in the here and now. And probably the main tool that I encourage people on that is mindfulness. Yeah, I mean, mindfulness is simply about awareness. It's the ability to pay attention to what is and to remove distractions. But anybody that's practiced a little bit of mindfulness knows it's not easy. It's not straightforward. So it really is a discipline that you've got to build. 
And like anything, disciplines need practice and practice comes from repetition. Absolutely. The next part of your journey is around adaptability and being adaptable. That kind of makes sense that most leaders today in particularly the ever-changing world we need to be adaptable. But what is it you've observed that stops us being as adaptable as we'd like? Yeah, look, I, I'll give you an example. I was actually just um, working with someone this morning and they've just taken over a new role, an executive officer role within a, a very established organization. And um, they were saying that, you know, preempted by COVID, but uh, change needs to happen. They cannot continue working in the way that they did. And even though some of those working practices didn't work, people still want to you know, go back to them and revert to them. Why? Because, of course, they're, they're, they're familiar and they're comfortable, even if they don't work. It's very, it's very rare, my experience, it's very rare to come across anybody that wakes up in the morning and goes, yippee. All change today. Some people, my, uh, if I was being really generous, I'd say 10% of people love change, thrive on change, drive change, lead on change. But I'd probably say it's about 5% in reality. The mo most of us, mere mortals, you know, we need to get comfortable with it. We need to then adapt to it. So if we take what's going on at the moment with, you know, home working, uh, initially, you know, it was, hugely challenging for people and for organizations you know for many many years even though people said they wanted to work from home companies thought no you're just having the day off they didn't trust people all of that now you know we're actually at a trend where people are you know yes there are obviously huge challenges come from working with home in particular you know for, in terms of for those with young children or if they don't have the, they're not equipped for it. And of course, it takes away from that social interaction, et cetera. But there are, you know, people have adapted and they're now saying they want to stay working from home. So, um, so we can adapt, but it's not straightforward. And this uh, chapter encouraged people to think ahead, to be able to anticipate the change that's coming down the line, to flex themselves and then be prepared and willing to stretch and take a few risks in order to adapt quicker and better. And in my experience as a coach, sometimes the motivation, the light bulb, if you like, happens after the event, particularly if you look back over what we've just experienced. Completely. And again, we need to be able to build that in. And so therefore that adaptability also will include that, yes, there will be a bit of lag time as well. The next principle is around being connected which is much deeper than just collaboration and networking, isn't it? Yeah, look, it starts with the whole premise of trust. And um, it's quite interesting. There was some fascinating research done last year by uh, an institute called ADP, and they uh, interviewed over 19,000 workers globally. And really, you know, what they synthesized was when you're talking about engagement and people being engaged, you're talking about trust. And what they found in particular as an example, was that those people that trusted their line managers were 12 times more engaged, 12 times wow. more engaged because of trust. What's really fascinating, again, back to neuroscience, is actually you can measure trust. So we have what's called neural mirrors. We get wired up uh, to trust and pick up. And I've seen studies done where they've wired up people's brain waves, and you can actually see the brain frequency um, in terms of how much I trust you and whether I trust you or not. So yes, when you're talking about being connected, it starts with that trust, 
then out of that comes real partnership, which means obviously, uh, and, and in particular in today's world where we need a lot of sensitivity, we need a lot of understanding, we need a lot of acceptance and compassion. And out of that, you can then create a, an inclusive environment where everyone, everyone feels that they have a sense of belonging. And that sense of belonging also plays into your next principle too, doesn't it, around being curious and how you create the environment for curiosity in the workplace? Yeah, it, it, it is. I, I was interviewing for the book. I, I got to interview a lot of the leaders I work with, and there was one CEO. I loved it. I said to him, so what is the one thing, the one thing that you are looking for from your, you know, your employees? And without hesitation, he just came back and he said, intense curiosity. It, most people don't know what's going on. So therefore, actually, what's going to help you navigate that? Well, you've got to be curious, intensely curious and ask questions and explore, create the time to think. You know, one of the things I really challenge leaders with is as a leader, you're paid to think, but most of the time you're too busy to think. You Thinking is a form of work. So you've got to recognize that. And out of that, then it unlocks creativity. And all of that then really helps to accelerate growth for organizations. Why? Because you're doing better thinking. You've got that curiosity and, and, a, and a real kind of growth mindset to a company. And let's face it, it's more fun as well, isn't it? Oh, it's a lot more fun. I mean, you know, I know that, um, I mean, I'm an educationalist at heart. I'm, I have an absolute passion for learning, development. And, and helping the next generation become better and create a better world. That's one of my core drivers. If you're not curious, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> so, you know, asking questions like what if and what's possible, and uh, that just really opens up that world of possibility. And in the book, you've got a great model that helps people think about their creativity, and you call it the ACT model, A-C-T. Maybe just give us a quick summary of what the A-C-T model is and how it can help us. Yeah, so look, it starts with autonomy. And, um, you know, I think we all need to have a sense that we have the space um, and we have the conditions to, to think and to think for ourselves. And, you know, most, most people I, I work with, what they really value and what they really value from leaders is where they are just allowed to get on with it. I have never, ever yet met anybody that loves to be micromanaged. Exactly right. <laughs> Let me be in the detail of your thinking and all your actions. It's one of the biggest turnoffs. Now, I get it. People need the detail. They need to know what's going on. They need to escalate. They need to manage senior stakeholders. Yes, I get that. But please give people autonomy. You're dealing with adults here. Treat them as adults. Secondly, then, you're talking about capability. And we all have our strengths. And that's critical, critical to really, really know and understand your strengths. And a strength is not just what you're good at, but it's where you get your energy from. It's what really energizes you. And um, so as an example, you know, writing for me, is that a strength? It's interesting. I, I, I don't think I'm particularly good at writing. It, it wasn't, it's not like a natural thing for me. I've had to learn to write. I've had to, I have to apply massive discipline to my writing, but it really energizes me. So a strength isn't just what you're good at, but broadening and building your capability then obviously is critical in terms of then being able to act and be a better version of you. And then uh, T is for thinking. 
And again, just cut. And part of the reason I write, for instance, literally, it forces me to think. Because I'm a doer. I, I'm a man of action. I love getting on with stuff. I find that really easy. Where I'm very, very challenged is when I'm asked to think about stuff. So writing is my discipline for thinking. It's a great tactic as well to get you to think. And literally by just asking questions and then writing responses forces a habit of thinking as well, doesn't it? Correct. Absolutely. Love that. And then the final principle of your six is being inspired. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the, the premise here is that for me, when you look at leadership, the number one ingredient that people look for in leaders, inspiration. To inspire, you need to be inspired yourself. So where do you draw your inspiration from? And there are a few elements I talk about here in the book. Uh, number one is around purpose. And yeah, I have a complete passion for purpose. It's kind of what I'm known for is around leading with purpose. And, you know, purpose is your big why. It's why you do what you do. It's your absolute fundamental intrinsic motivator, which really enables you to be the best that you can be. So that's a key element. Another element is about values and really living to your values and being true to yourself. Uh, another, as I just mentioned, is around playing to strengths. Also having vision and really creating a compelling picture for yourself of a future that really excites you and energizes you and moves you in that direction. Out of that, I think you, you, you get your energy and it builds your resilience as well. Uh, what I've noticed for myself is most of my resilience comes through my, from adversity and all the uh, challenges and hardship I face. And I, and I build that resilience and, uh, and I finish the book, you know, with final reflections back to purpose in terms of putting purpose first. And when I skipped through the book, I, I just loved the practical application of it. So for, for me as a, as a leader, as a coach, but also just taking away some ideas and tips, the book's pumped full of great ideas as well. So we'll share with our guests how they can get hold of a copy of Being Shortly, Ben. But before we do that, we're going to turn the leadership lens on you now. Ah. So this is where we get to hack into your great leadership mind. And the first place I'd like to go is to find out what your top three leadership hacks are. Yeah, so look, I uh, lo love the question. Um, so number one f for me is about being yourself. I deliberately avoid using the word authenticity because I think it's overused. But the concept of that is be yourself. Now, the challenge with being yourself is that you've got to know yourself. It's all very well telling somebody, you know, be who you are, but you've got to understand who you are and know who you are and that for me is a lifetime exploration uh, but i think anybody anybody that shows up uh, as themselves people value it and warts and all you know we're not there's no such thing as a perfect leader there's nobody that's got it together um you know being human is means we are fundamentally flawed <laughs> and your ability to uh, understand those flaws and uh, and actually bring them as part of your ha humanity is absolutely key. So number one is is in terms of being yourself. I think number two, uh, probably what I feel most strongly about is about appreciating others. Um, I, you know, what really drives me and why I do what I do is I have seen so much f of the outcome of 
poor leadership where people are not respected, they're not listened to, they're not valued, they're not appreciated, they're not cared for, they're not listened to. I mean, what for me is so basic and fundamental and yet people don't do it. And it, it, I, it just, it, it's like, you got to be kidding me, <laughs> but it's what goes on. So for me, that genuine, genuine appreciation for, of others is key. And, and I think the third one is, I'm not quite sure how to frame it because it sounds a bit frivolous, but enjoy it. You know, ha- have some fun along the way. I mean, my experience of life is life's hard. So that's just my, my experience is life's a struggle. Uh, it's hard every day, you know, challenge after challenge after challenge. Somewhere within that, you know, you've got to be able to really enjoy it and be energized by it. And, uh, and I think, therefore, all of that, therefore, makes it worthwhile and meaningful. And the more focus we have on enjoyment of the things that we do, it creates that positive mental models in our mind to help us keep focused on doing the right things versus focus on adversity. Correct. It's about mindset, I guess, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the next part of the show we're going to kick around with you is what we call hack to attack. And this is where we have learned from adversity or something that's gone wrong in our life or our work, but we've used that learning and it's now a positive in our life. What would be your hack to attack? I think the the main one I've had is is around honesty. I found this the most challenging within an organizational context where I grew up in an environment, like I mentioned, you know, my father was my headmaster, ran the school. It was a little boarding school. And then age 16, I found out that he'd had affairs throughout the marriage. My parents divorced. It was very public. It was very painful. It actually was one of the triggers for me in terms of my own personal development. So I kind of vowed about this uh, need for honesty. And then what I found myself working in organizations at the most senior levels around executive tables, the, 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 the politics and the agendas and the dynamics made for honesty very, very difficult. And now there are certain organizations that talk about radical transparency. So like the Netflix and stuff, and they're kind of known for that. And so what I, I think my biggest learning is because what I realized, I, I, I used to try and get people just to hang out all their dirty laundry to dry. Uh, it didn't work, really didn't work. And actually often created more friction because people weren't ready. They weren't prepared. They didn't have the skill set. They didn't have the mindset. They didn't have the ability to navigate a lot of that sensitivity. So I've had to really learn to be more um, considerate and thoughtful about how uh, you bring people together, how you broker relationships, how do you create that cohesion, and how do you create the environments and the conditions and again, that probably for me is where psychological safety, I, I feel so strongly about that. And I have so much resonance with that um, because most of the time, a lot of the environments I'm in, people are afraid. They're afraid of losing their jobs. They're afraid of uh, the potential implications of that. They're afraid of making mistakes. So again, helping people feel safe is key. But I've had to really learn on on, on the way in order to to do that in a way that feels right and true for me. 
that's super learning and, and I can reflect back on my career as well and I think honesty is always sought isn't it we always want people to be honest with us but it's also being candid and being honest is actually quite a skill because it takes thought it takes awareness of how we communicate that too absolutely and most people don't have that awareness most people are not aware of the impact they have and how they come across so even if they've got good intent and they're thinking about being honest they haven't thought enough about how that may land, what are the implications of that, and potential unintended consequences. So all of that needs to be taken into consideration. Definitely does. The last thing we're going to do with you today, Ben, is take you on some time travel. You get a chance now to bump into Ben at 21 and give him some advice. What's it going to be? Relax, relax, relax. You know, if I look back, I think about all the things that I've neurosed about, all the things I've worried about, um, so I'm 53 now, so that's what, 32 years <laughs> since I was 21. Uh, most, most of those anxieties never came, never happened. And yet when I think about the amount of energy they took, then that was a, a lot of wastage, a lot of wastage. So I, I, I think that the message would be relax, trust. But of course, the challenge is that until you've built the muscle in order to be able to know that you can genuinely relax and trust, <laughs> it, it, you can't just tell it. So I love the idea of here's my 21-year-old self, relax, trust the process. But I get, I also really get with that, that actually in order to get to that place where you can relax, you've probably got to accumulate the scar tissue along the way. It's a real shame, isn't it? We can't kind of hardwire into our 50s when we are 21 and kind of uh, bring some of that muscle memory forward. I think I would have been uh, a much more practical 21-year-old as well. I know, I know, I know. And, you know, obviously I try that with my kids. And I, and I, I would like to think, I mean, my daughter's 18 and, you know, like just getting her A-level results. And, yeah, I, I was genuinely, I had, I had no anxiety around it. And, and I, a, because I don't really care about those things in terms of results. I, I care that she's, um, you know, rewarded for all her work and what she does, uh, but not the, yeah, the actual letter or number. But I, 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 and I'd like to think that because I'm able to be a bit more like that now, that rubs off on my kids. So that's kind of where I see it. Super. And actually, I did some research for my book uh, quite a few years ago around entrepreneurs and entre entrepreneurial spirit. And most entrepreneurs that I interviewed and researched had actually flunked most of their high school or their, their education, ironically. Oh, yeah. Com yeah, completely. I mean, there's no, yes, yeah, certainly if you're in the entrepreneurial space, I would almost say it's a prerequisite. <laughs> Why? Because you're a rebel and you think yeah, differently maybe. and you don't care and you, you don't care about the rules. And, you know, so absolutely. So whether you're a Jobs, a Zuckerberg, obviously all, all the big famous ones, uh, but I would agree. All the entrepreneurs I know, uh, they are not there because of their A-level results, that's for sure. So where can our listeners get a copy of Being, Ben? Uh, look, I mean, obviously the easiest place is Amazon. So, uh, you know, go on there. And but you're welcome to visit, uh, you know, benrencher.com. But probably where I'm most active is LinkedIn. So, you know, it'd be great for you just linking with me. Uh, I, I was doing like daily thought for the day up and during the whole COVID run. I've just taken a break. I've come back. I'll start um, kind of reigniting that because that was really helpful for me as well, just in terms of 
time, more time to think for me. Um, so, uh, and I, I love just being in touch and great to get your feedback and let's keep the conversation going. And we'll make sure we help you with that conversation and our listeners to connect with you by making sure all of those are in our show notes as well as on our website for when we're done. That's fantastic, Steve. Ben, I've super enjoyed reading the book. I've particularly enjoyed the times that we've met and, uh, and I really wish you all the success with being. I have absolutely no doubt it's going to be a huge hit and I wish you every success for what happens in your future. But thank you for being on the Leadership Hacker podcast. Steve, thank you so much. It's, you're doing brilliant work and it's great to be part of it. Really appreciate that. Thanks, Ben. Lovely. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker. Leadership Hacker.